Father, we pray that you would open our ears that we might hear you this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our mind that we might know you more this morning. And most of all, God, we pray that you would open our hearts so that we might love you more this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We love stories, don't we? We all love a good story. Now, I don't know about you, but my favorite kind of story is a really good epic adventure. I love epic adventures. You know, the kind where the the hero prevails against the enemy, really against all impossible odds. I love those kind of stories. But in all of them, if you happen to, to watch those kind of movies or read those kind of books, then maybe you've seen the same thing that I've seen, that they're kind of formulaic. The, this plot line is kind of, a, there's a formula to it. It's not a bad thing, but there's a formula. The formula goes something like this. You have a main character that starts from humble beginnings and is thrown into this epic adventure that they didn't really choose, but it quickly realizes that the outcome of that adventure depends on how they respond. Now think about that. Think of like the plot line of The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia or the Harry Potter series or my favorite, the Star Wars series. In all of those series, there's also a couple other elements that you're going to find. One is that somewhere along the way, somebody is going to show up and give gifts to our main characters. If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that there's this, there's this, this kind of watershed scene where Santa Claus, Father Christmas, shows up and gives gifts to the children. Luke Skywalker gets his father's sword and so on, or or, um, lightsaber and so on and so forth, which all of these gifts come to find out are, are critical to the survival of our main character. And all of these gifts, in one way or another, involve some type of sword. It helps the it helps the main character survive and to conquer. There's also another uh, aspect in a lot of these kind of adventure epics. It's that our main character usually has a group of friends. Think about it. Luke Skywalker has Chewie and, and Han Solo, and you've got Frodo has the Fellowship of the Rings and so forth and so on. And it comes to find out that our main character would not be able to to, to survive or to, or to succeed in that quest if it wasn't for their group, that group of friends. Now, like I said, I love adventure epics, and even though they're fictional, I think that there's something about them that we can relate to. Adventures, I believe, show us that all the struggles and the trials that we face in reality, that we face in life, can actually be overcome. I think they give us a type of hope. G.K. Chesterton, the the 20th century writer, has one of my favorite lines of all time. He wrote this, he said, in commenting on fairy tales, he said, look, he said, fairy tales give to a child his first clear idea of the possible defeat of dragons. The child has known dragons intimately ever since they had an imagination. What fairy tales provide for the child is a St. George to kill the dragon. In other words, epic adventures give us confidence that the dragons that we face in life, metaphorically, can be defeated and can be overcome. Now, we certainly face a lot of trials and struggles in life, don't we? 
especially for Christians, we really know what it's like to go through life trying to live a godly life in the midst of a godless world. Jesus even warned us of this. In the Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 33, he's talking to his disciples and he says, look, in me you can have peace, but in the world you're going to have troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And for the Christian, for the Christian life, that's kind of the watershed difference between these great epic adventures that we see in our culture and the Christian life is that our struggle, our trials are already defeated. We're not trying to defeat something. We're simply standing in the victory that Jesus has already promised us. On Jesus's, on the cross and in the resurrection, Christ has overcome all enemies that we would face in life. Now, that doesn't mean that the things that we face in life can't still hurt us. It doesn't mean that things we face in life aren't scary or real or discouraging. But they're not definitive. They don't have the final word. And so, as we go through life on this epic journey called life, if I can say that without sounding too cheesy, on this, we're, not, we're not going through life alone, nor do we go through life ill-equipped. We can approach life differently because of Christ, because we have, sure, we have a sure and, and firm confidence in Christ's victory over all the things that we face in life. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. If you are just joining us for the first time, you're joining us at the tail end, the very last sermon in a year-long series as we've been going through the book of Ephesians. All year long, we've been reading Paul's letter to the book of the Ephesians, and Paul has been reminding us of a lot of things. One of the main things that he's been reminding us is that we have been given in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm of reality. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we who were once dead in our sins and transgressions, we are made alive in Christ. Because of that, strangers and aliens are no longer, and, and enemies are no longer strangers and aliens and enemies, but brought in and made citizens of, king, of a kingdom and made children of a household. In Christ, Paul has been reminding us through, as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, that we have true unity, that we have true peace and reconciliation, true forgiveness, and true salvation. And these are solely good gifts of a gracious and loving God. These are not things that we earned, but the things that God has done for us. However, it doesn't stop there, because Paul also reminds us that God doesn't just do all of this for us, but then he, he does all this, but then he sends us back out to take that same peace, that same love, that same message of reconciliation and forgiveness of sins and message of salvation back out into a world that needs to hear it. However, like we've said, that world is at odds with God and doesn't really want to hear this good news that we have to say and to tell. That's why as we come to the end of Ephesians, Paul reminds us in chapter 6, in the, in the passage we just read a minute ago, that, that we are struggling in the world. However, our struggle is not against each other. Our struggle is not against flesh 
and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities of this present darkness, against the Satan and, and, his, and his demons, our adversary. That there is always something deeper going on in the struggles and the trials that we face out in the world. And so Paul wants to encourage us at the end of the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. And one of the ways he does that is he reminds us that we have been given gifts for the journey. And so as we looked at last week, we looked at the armor of God, which is, which is the, the great passage of the armor of God, and we see that, that our armor consists of things like truth and peace and righteousness and salvation. We looked at all that last week, and this week we're going to finish that out. So if you have your scriptures with, with you, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 17, which is the end of his great description of, of the armor of God. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul is going to continue. Last week, we, we looked at, the, we looked at the, the helmet of salvation and all that that is. This week, we're going to look at the second part of that verse, where Paul says, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, let's just stop right there and let's linger there for a minute. Up to this point, as Paul has been describing his, the armor of God, we've seen that every piece of the armor has been a, a, a defensive piece. It's been a piece for protection. And so now in this verse, we get our offensive weapon. We get our sword. Now, I don't know about you, but I love swords. I think swords are really cool. I'm not much of a weapons guy, but I really like swords. And I will someday, if, so, if the technology ever happens, I will have a lightsaber. <laughs> but, swords are, but we love swords, right? Swords are, are symbolic. They symbolize power. They symbolize authority. They symbolize rule. But let me give a word of caution. When we look at the idea of the Word of God as the sword... Let me just offer a word of caution, because if you haven't noticed by now that when the, the biblical writers, Jesus and, and Paul and all the biblical writers, they love to take things from everyday life that we think we know what it is and kind of turn it, on, turn it on its head. So if you look at, if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at just the idea of authority. Normally, when we think of the idea of authority, we think of power over something. Well, as we looked at, that's not the biblical understanding of authority. In fact, biblical understanding of authority is not power over something. It's the ability to serve. The last shall be first. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you must be the servant of all. Jesus loves to take things and flip it on its head and challenge our understanding of, what, of, of how we understand things. So when we come to an idea of a sword, let me just offer a caution that it's probably a good idea to just stop and say, okay, what are you trying to tell us? Because I can say this with great confidence that too often Christians have assumed that we understood what the purpose of a sword is in Scripture, and we've done great damage in the world. We've done great damage in the church because we've wielded it improperly. So I think Paul wants to give us just a slightly different image of a sword than what we would normally think of. Here's what I mean. In Greek, quick little word study for you. In Greek, there are two different kinds of names for swords that Paul could have used. 
one of the names for a sword is like a, would mean like a broadsword or a javelin or something, or something big that is what we would kind of normally think of as a sword. There's a scene in Revelation 19 when the heavens open up and Jesus comes out of heaven riding on a white horse. And in verse, and in verse 15 of chapter 19, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. A sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The word there is the word for a battle sword. This kind of a big, broad sword that you would think that as you go out and conquer the enemy, you swing widely in trying to inflict as much damage as you possibly can. That's what we normally think of as swords. That's the one that's pictured in Revelation 19. Notice, however, that in Revelation 19, only Jesus wields that sword. Only Jesus wields the sword to strike down the nations. That's actually a very vital truth for Christians because the sword in Ephesians is not that sword. It's a different word. The word that Paul is describing the Bible or the the word of God as is like a short sword, what we would more than likely consider like a dagger, maybe even a long dagger. You see, Roman soldiers would actually carry two different swords. The first one is either, a ba- either like a big battle sword or, or a javelin, something that would be used to inflict as much damage as possible. They also had a second sword, this kind of shorter sword that they would either carry on their hip or sometimes in a pouch on the, on the back of the, of the shield. That sword was used for very close hand-to-hand combat. When the enemy got really close that you could see the white of his eyes, that you could smell his breath, and that you needed something quick and precise, and, and how you wielded it depended on life or death. It's when the enemy got so close, even past your shields, we're talking as close as possible, and you needed something quick to deflect, and, to, to deflect and, and you needed something for precision. This sword is also the sword that's pictured in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when when the writer of Hebrews says, the word of the Lord is a sharp two-edged sword, is, is, is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate and separate even spirit from soul and laying bare the intentions of the heart. The imagery in Hebrews is that of like a surgeon's knife, something that you need for precision. Not damage, but precision. If I can get a little graphic, in Joshua... In the Old Testament, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, what we know as the, as the Septuagint, in Ch- Joshua chapter 5, God commands Joshua to create flint knives used for circumcision. That's the word that's being used here. This is for precision. You get it? This is for precision. This is not for mass destruction. This is for, for close quarter precision. Paul goes on and he drives this home even further in his description. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, this short sword, this dagger of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. One more little Greek word study for you. Once had an old pastor that says, I love words. Words are important. Throughout the Scripture, the word for word, the word that we translate as word, normally is the word logos. We see that in a lot of places. We, if you've read the, the great prologue of the Gospel of John where Jesus is called the Word of God, that's the Logos. 
And we see it show up in a lot of different places. The word logos is a very general term. It's very sweeping, almost even cosmic in its understanding and scope. And so when you, and so when you talk about the, the Bible as the Word of God, usually it's, you're talking about the, the full account of the Bible, the Word of God, the logos. However, the word translated for word here is a different word. It's rhema. Now, the words aren't the, the words are related in a lot of different ways with some very specific differences. The rhema, as one Greek dictionary describes it, is, is a sound uttered by a living voice having a very definite meaning. So here's what's in view here. I don't think that Paul, when he says the sword of the, 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 sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he's not talking specifically about the full counsel of Scripture per se, per se. One biblical scholar said that, what, said that the word of the Lord that Paul is talking about here is like a specific sword. And if you want to think of the Bible, think of the Bible as an armory in which is housed thousands of different swords. The way I would describe it is a truth of God spoken into a very specific situation for a very precise purpose. That's what he's talking about. So not the full counsel of Scripture, but, but like a proverb or a truth that's been revealed. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what does he do? He is taken out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and in the wilderness he fasts for 40 days. After 40 days, he's, he's tired, he is hungry, he is weak. He's at the lowest part, apart from the crucifixion, that we see Jesus. The enemy, the adversary, the Satan, comes to him and says, Oh, you're hungry. Well, you're the Son of God. Why don't you turn those, those stones into bread? How does Jesus respond? Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Satan says, okay, well, look at all of the nations of the world. I can give you authority over all the nations of the world if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus responds. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Satan then says, okay, well, we can play this game. Isn't it also written that if you're the son of God, that it says that God will give his angels charge over you and you won't even strike your foot against a stone. So why don't you just go throw yourself off that cliff and see what happens? And Jesus says what? He says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then Satan leaves. So in each of these cases... Jesus uses a very specific word of God, a very precise truth for a specific moment, and deflects any temptation that, that the adversary could bring to him. Now, yes, Jesus was the Son of God, but the Incarnation says that he was also fully man. And so the temptations that he faced were very real temptations. Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, us, sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we were, yet without sin. You see, the temptations that Jesus faced were very real, and his weapons were very effective. Jesus' temptations, like I said, are a lot like our temptations. Now, we preachers, we love to say that our enemy is crafty, very much crafty, but he's not very creative. Contrast the scene with Jesus with the scene in the beginning of, of Genesis. When, in Genesis chapter 3, when we first see the serpent comes on the scene, the serpent that we've come to understand as, as the adversary, as Satan, what are the very first words out of the serpent's mouth? Did God actually say? That's right. Did God actually say that you shall not eat? Did God actually say? And I don't know about you, but I hear that a lot in my own life. Did God actually say, don't do that? Did God actually say, don't touch that? Don't look at that? Don't do this? Do this, not that? Did God actually say that you're completely forgiven, that, that you have a hope? Did God actually say that when you go through marriage problems, your, your marriage is falling apart? Did God actually say that marriage is for life? when you're discouraged about something? Did God actually say that there's hope, that he's trustworthy? Did God actually say that? Our swords, at those precise moments as we're going through life, when the, when the enemy is hitting us at our most vulnerable places, are these precise words of God. Did God actually say? Yeah, God actually said. Why? Because it's written. Did God actually say you're forgiven? Yeah. It's written that if we confess our sins, we have, a, we have an advocate before the Father. That it is written that, yes, we have the hope of salvation. Did God actually say, yes, it's written? Those are the swords that Paul is talking about here. The words, these words are the swords that we can use to deflect our enemy, uh, to deflect all that the enemy would bring against us when the enemy gets in very close quarters, when the enemy hits us at our most vulnerable whether we face sin or temptation or just the overwhelming stuff of life. A couple years ago, I bought my oldest son a guitar. Shock and surprise. I love to buy guitars. So I bought one for my, <laughs> I bought one for my oldest son. Two years, it sat, and two years, he still doesn't know how to play it. He doesn't spend any time with it. When he does decide every once in a while, hey, I'm going to go in and I'd really like to play, and I try to show him something, he just kind of wants to make noise with it and then put it down and go on about his life. So at this point, he doesn't really know how to play guitar. He doesn't know what to do with it. If he wants to play a song or if I needed him to, to play in the band or something, he wouldn't know what to do with it because he hasn't spent any time with it. So my question for you then is, how much time are you spending in your scriptures? How much time are you spending in your scriptures? One of the things I want to encourage, and I think that Paul wants to encourage us, is, is spend time in the scriptures, because if we don't, it doesn't matter how many Bibles you have in your room, in your house, if you don't spend any time with the, in the scriptures, when you need those swords and you're facing the enemy, they won't be available to you. They won't be available to you. Moreover, Paul's going to continue 
And he's going to tell us, not do we just need to read our scriptures, but we need to spend time in prayer. I, I once heard a, a pastor say, you know, I get really frustrated because after I do this very long sermon, it always, it always tends to be that my application for the sermon is read your Bible and pray. I, I can relate to that. But in this case, that is the application for this. Not only do we need to be spending time in the Word, but spending time in prayer. Paul's going to continue in verse 17, into verse 18. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To see how this fits together, let's get just a a quick, basic working definition of what prayer is. Don't want to overcomplicate it. Prayer is simply talking with God. Prayer is simply talking with God. Prayer is not talking at God. How about you? But I'm really good at that. I'm really good at coming to God and giving Him this whole laundry list of stuff and then going on about my day. I once heard about this study on, on human interaction, and the study said that as two people are conversing, the one who talks the most during the conversation is the one who finds it the most enjoyable. Have you ever had a conversation where you could not get a word in edgewise? You just couldn't get a word in edgewise because the other person just keeps talking. Well, according to the study, if you would have asked them, they would, they would have said, oh yeah, we had a great time together. How many times do we come before God, say a bunch of words, and then walk away and think, man, that was a great prayer time. What if God really wants to say something to us? What if God really wants to say to us, something to us and can't get a word in edgewise? You see, Prayer is conversing with God. And not only is it important to bring stuff to God, the things of life to God, but it's important to, to sit and listen. Because it's as we listen that the Lord can then speak to us. The Lord can instruct us. The Lord can bring to mind these verses that we need for encouragement along the way. But sometimes we don't give them a chance to do so. Now, when we pray, we don't have to spend long periods of time in silence, although that's good, but sometimes just a little bit often because it trains us to learn how to hear from the Lord. And sometimes we need to learn, and sometimes even when we're out in life and we're facing the things that we're facing, the Lord's trying to speak to us, but we don't hear it because we don't know how to hear it because we don't spend time listening to God. And so Paul tells us to pray. Pray at all times. In the Spirit, continues on. He says, pray at all times with all prayer, with all conversation, and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So yeah, God wants us to bring, to bring the stuff of life to him. Supplication, your, your translation may say petition. It's the idea of intercessory prayer. Praying for all the saints. So to that end, let me ask, how, long, how much time do you spend praying for each other? How much time do we spend praying for each other? Paul says, pray at all times. That's a lot of time. Do we spend anywhere near that praying for each other, lifting us, lifting each other up before the Lord? Why? Well, because we're all on this journey together. The enemies that we face 
is the same enemies. We don't journey alone. One of the truths that Paul reminds us as we've gone through the book of Ephesians is that when we are saved, when Christ saves us, we are not, we don't remain alone, but we are brought in and made part of a body of Christ. We are made part of a body of Christ. We are made part of something much bigger than us. If one part of that body hurts, it actually affects the whole body. We know this just by the times that we've been hurt. It affects us. And so we want to, we want to be lifting each other up because as you stand, I stand. As I fall, you fall. And we need each other, we need each other to, to lift, we need to be lifting each other up. That's why, if I can give some encouragement, one thing that I see a lot in the Christian life and as we go through life together is that when we start going through trials, Inevitably, and we go like through really serious trials, and for some reason, it's used, this uh, this is this plays itself out mostly when there's marriage problems. We separate ourselves off from the community. We kind of withdraw. Like I got to deal with this first, and then I'll kind of reengage. Let me encourage you: don't do that. It's my pastoral advice: don't do that. <laughs> Why? Because the community of Christ is one of the gifts that God has given us in order to stand in order to persevere against all the schemes of, of our enemy. We need each other. We need to be praying for each other. I love what Richard Foster wrote about intercessory prayer. Richard Foster is a, kind of a contemporary spiritual writer. He said, One of the most critical aspects of learning to pray for others is to get in contact with God so that His life and His power can flow through us into others. You see, prayer is one of the ways that we participate in each other's life. Once heard a pastor say, prayer is not getting God to do something for us. Prayer is letting God do something through us. And as we pray for each other, maybe God will bring a word of encouragement that we need to take to another person. Have, have you ever done that? Have you ever, has God ever put somebody on your heart and maybe with a Bible verse and just says, I need to go share this with that person. And it's exactly what that person needed. This is one of the reasons why prayer is so important, so that God can communicate to us and through us for each other. So in closing, let me give you two kind of other applications besides praying and reading your Bible. Specifically, how to pray for each other. Because there are times that we're not sure what to pray for each other. Here's two things in Paul, that I think Paul gives us that he's been giving us as we've gone through the entire book of Ephesians. One of the things that I would encourage us to pray for is pray for each other's spiritual growth at all times. Anytime that you think of someone, be praying for their spiritual growth. In the very first chapter of Ephesians, Paul starts off and he says, he tells the Ephesians church that he prays for them this way, and I think that this is a great way for us to pray. Paul says, I pray for you that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what the hope to which you ha- that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe? I would love it if you prayed that for me. That I would know ever deeper the richness of the inheritance that is mine in Christ Jesus. The glories of the richness of all that God has given to us. We have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm of reality, as he says all throughout Ephesians. So I encourage you to pray for each other's spiritual growth so that, so that we remember all that God has done for us in saving us and in bringing us in Christ Jesus. Because it is when we forget what God has done for us that we are at our most vulnerable. The second thing to be praying for is the way that Paul asks the Ephesian church to pray for him. He closes out Ephesians and he says, And all, I, pr- I ask you to pray also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth to proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now there's definitely a lot there. Paul is on his way at this point to, to stand trial against a Roman tribunal. And Paul, as you know, is not a man who has any lack for words. He once spoke for 14 hours and a guy almost fell asleep and, or fell asleep and fell out a window and almost to his death. He's not a man who, who needs help with his words. However, he's saying, pray for me, that in all that I speak, that the mystery of, of the gospel may be made very clear. And I think that's a prayer that we can be praying for each other too. Not that we have to go out and become these great evangelists like Billy Graham style. That's not it but that as we go through life, as the opportunities arise, that we can clearly give an account for the hope that is, is, that, that is within us. It doesn't have to be with eloquent speech, just that we would pray that the Spirit would be speaking through us, that as opportunities arise, to share this mystery of God. This mystery of God, as Paul has been telling us through all Ephesians, is that Christ has died, Christ rose again, Christ, and because of that, we have we have true salvation. By grace, through faith, we are saved, not of our works, only through what Christ has done for us. So pray that as we're out, as we're out in in the world, and as we're facing the enemies that we face, that we may speak the the gospel boldly, because that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a precise instrument that can not only remind us and deflect our enemy from us, but it's also what God wants to use through us out in the world to bring others to the saving knowledge of him. So pray for each other. Pray for each other. That the gospel, that as we live our life together, the gospel might be made real before a watching world. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.